Hey everyone, did you hear that? Somebody said the Yankees are coming. Actually, we hear that all the time here in Savannah, Georgia. Today it would mean they were coming down for a few days of vacation. But back in 1864, it didn't mean they were stopping in town to catch dinner at Sweet Potatoes Kitchen or buy a couple of t-shirts down on River Street. It would have been a little more distressing when those words were spoken around South Georgia. And so, to go with that, here's a great story about a Union prisoner of war in Savannah at the end of the American Civil War who heard those words and was very relieved. His story gives you a perspective that you don't often hear. Because in 1864, Union soldier Frederick Emil Schmidt and others endured the stench of filth and death in the infamous Confederate Civil War camp at Andersonville, Georgia. But out of a stroke of genius and luck, he ended up in Savannah hiding from the rebels and waiting for the arrival of Union General William Tecumseh Sherman. He has a great story and that it almost fell into obscurity. Stick around, I'll give you my take on it. I'm J.D. Bias. Welcome to History by GPS, where you travel through history and culture. GPS location by GPS location. So click on your favorite map app and follow along. The coordinates for the location talked about in this podcast, 32.078098 degrees by negative 81.082878 degrees. Now, on to our story, which, by the way, is one of three interesting historical events that happened years apart at the same location. We're talking physically on the same spot of ground within a 10-yard circle. You'll find those stories noted at the end of the website, too. For this episode, the spot plays an important role in the life of Frederick Schmidt because he ended up hiding within this small, tiny circle on the globe. Schmidt was a POW during the American Civil War, as I mentioned, but if you recall the story of Andersonville, it was there that almost 13,000 of 43,000 Union soldiers died from hunger and disease during the years the prison was operating. That was 1861 to 1865. Now, I might add that similar conditions were experienced in northern prisoner of war camps. There were no picnics up there either, but you don't hear about that very much. See, the South lost the war, in case you haven't heard. And at it is always espoused that the victor writes the history. What made things worse in the South was that the population was low on food and provisions, which made prison life a living hell. By the way, J.D. Hewitt over at the History Underground on YouTube, he has a great episode about the conditions at Andersonville. I'll put a link in the show notes. I guarantee it's well worth a look. Okay, there at Andersonville, one day... Uh, Frederick Schmidt's luck changed, and that was in October 1864 when he noticed a group of prisoners by the main gate being placed in rank and file as if they were getting ready to march outside. It was drizzling rain when he saw his chance for a difference in scenery. But who was Frederick Emil Schmidt? Good question. I'm glad you asked because it fits right into the next part of the story. You see, Schmidt came to America from Bavaria in 1859. Then he settled in Elizabeth, New Jersey, and he enlisted in the Union Army on February 10, 1864. 
He held the rank of private in Company D of the 3rd New Jersey Cavalry Regiment under Colonel Andrew J. Morrison. By June 1864, he was in the Union Cavalry under the Major General James H. Wilson, and he found himself captured after the rebels raided his position outside of Richmond, Virginia. His friends and officers couldn't find him, so they thought he was dead, and they listed him as being killed in action. So most of his military life, military experience, was in prison. In 1919, he wrote his memoir of being a POW when he was 77 years old. That was 55 years after his experience in the South. But ironically, his story wasn't published until 1958 when his daughter gave it to the Wisconsin Historical Society. So I guess there's hope for some of the articles I wrote back in my newspaper days. Not much is known about Schmidt. I do know that he was an engineer, and I did find a master's thesis written at the University of Wisconsin in 1904 by a Frederick Schmidt. It was on mass transit, you know, street trolleys and things like that. And as far as I can tell, he was in that field, being an engineer. However, I think it may have been a son or someone else since Frederick would have been about 62 years old at that time. Then again, I got my history degree at a ripe old age of 53, so who knows? Now, Schmidt's recollection of the prison is an intriguing story in that it bends the typical narrative about Andersonville with an interesting perspective. It tells of his kindness toward his captors in a way that other prisoners did not record nor recollect afterwards, at least as far as I've seen. Schmidt said, and I quote, Personally, I witnessed no cruelties to individuals except such a result from the general conditions. He goes on. The southern states in 1864, being themselves short of foodstuffs, could give prisoners only such food as they themselves had. And the rebel soldiers about the camp had no better food than the prisoners. Quite magnanimous, I would say. Interesting, indeed. So, on one cold morning, Schmidt's odyssey to freedom began after a night of discomfort made him get up and start moving around, work the kinks out after sleeping on the ground. He wrote, Being stiff and cold, I got up, slung my haversack over my shoulders, and began to walk down toward the driveway where I hoped to get a chance to warm myself near one of the bake ovens. Have you seen maps of the prison or drawings? There were a couple of ovens in the bakery that were fairly large, a good place to get warm. Well, the sound of drums beating caught his attention. Over near the gate, a detachment was ordered to fall in to be taken to the train. He said the column was already marching, and the first row was already outside of the large stockade gates. Schmidt slipped into the lines, but was seen by one man in a line who recognized he was not part of the chosen group. He immediately pounced upon him and tried to push him out of the marching column, but only succeeded in pushing him back to the next row. Then Schmidt was jostled further back in the line until they finally ended up in a group of men who didn't care or thought he was just one of the men selected. As they marched out of the campground, two rebel officers stood on each side counting the men who passed by. Schmidt's line was the last row to be allowed out of the gate. 
Just as his line was counted, the men behind them were stopped. Schmidt didn't know where he was going, but anywhere was better than Andersonville. By the way, remember that the show notes and GPS locations for all of the spots mentioned in this episode can be found in the show notes at historybygps.com. And while you're there, check out our books and merchandise. I think you'll like our line of products from Savannah and its history, including some highlights from this episode. And leave a comment. I'd love to hear your opinion. And other listeners would like to hear it, too. We all might learn something. Meanwhile, back at Andersonville Station, Schmidt and the other men were loaded into railroad boxcars and told that their destination was the Savannah POW camp that covered the 700 block along Whitaker and West Hall at Gwinnett Streets. That's across from Forsyth Park, if you bid there. I've looked at my notes, and I can't find the name of that prison. I know I've heard it before. I think it may have been Camp Mercer or Camp McClaws, but my notes and my memory have slipped away somewhere. However, if you know the name of the Savannah Camp, please let me know. I'd I'd appreciate it. I can't find my notes anywhere. Now, by chance, POW artist Robert Knox Snaden, if you've heard of him, He was in the Andersonville and Savannah prisons with Schmidt and was in that same group of men who were transferred to Savannah. Snaden captured the compound on paper, in ink, and many other wartime details. They're available in books that you can find on Amazon or at your local bookstore. I have a couple of his drawings I found in the Library of Congress archives, and they're in the show notes. Now, Schmidt, after a few weeks, he described Savannah as being in utter misery. Another stroke of luck came his way, though. One morning, an officer named Captain Gautil came to the gate and recruited men to work in a local machine shop. Hearing that Gautil was looking for workers who were machinists, again, Schmidt's grit placed him in an advantageous position. So he made a rapid jump toward the gate But as soon as he made a step or two, one of the self-appointed guards inside saw him and ran at him, ready to strike. See, a set of POW rowdies had taken over the internal government of the camp. Each of them carried a huge hickory stick, kind of Buford Pusser style, if you're old enough to remember that story. And the ruffians only let men who paid them approach the gate. But when Schmidt ran for the gate, Captain Gautil warned the henchmen away and let Schmidt approach him and talk to him, so he was able to tell him about his engineering experience. And he was chosen, so he and a small group of POWs were marched across town to Alvin Miller's Iron Foundry. It's on the banks of the Savannah River, about 300 yards east of Trustee's Garden. You know, the Trustee's Garden and the Savannah Gas Works. It was located on a spot today where the Thompson Hotel stands. Now there, Schmidt and his fellow prisoners were turned over to a manager. Later, Schmidt was shown a small horizontal stationary engine and asked to overhaul it so it could be installed in a boat. Now I talk about Alvin Miller's foundry in another episode about survivors of the charge of the light brigade. So, that's another story. With Schmidt's new job came a near unlimited freedom to roam around the city. 
Often, on his off time, he would visit the gas works where he met the superintendent, James Smedberg. As Schmidt described, a Scandinavian and a Union sympathizer. Now, you may notice uh, in this episode, Schmidt's recollection of almost everybody he met in town was a Union sympathizer. Then again, who knows? I was, I was out of town that day. But then again, when folks found out that General Sherman was on his way to town, I can imagine that many people were choosing a different side of the political conflict. Now, Smedberg, the superintendent, he pops in another episode about the Confederacy's silk dress balloon, so stay tuned. When Smedberg wasn't around, Schmidt sneaked into the retort house and got to know the Stokers, many of whom were black locals or Irish immigrants. Now, to explain, a retort is an oven where coal is cooked to make gas for streetlights, stoves, and other industrial residential uses. It was similar to natural gas that we have today. The retort operation was a hot and dirty job where coal was heated over coke fires. Not Coca-Cola coke, but uh, charcoal-like stuff, except that it burns hotter. The gases from the hot coal were refined into residential gas, but it also uh, was turned into benzene, ammonia, acetate, and other byproducts. Don't ask me how. It's a bit like magic or alchemy to me, but I definitely wasn't a chemistry major in school, so I don't know. Well, with a swirl of rumors saying General Sherman was marching to the sea at Savannah, according to Schmidt, many workers were eagerly awaiting his arrival. So many befriended the near-celebrity POW. Over at Miller's Foundry, the man he worked under was a German named Mr. Weber. Now, Weber took Schmidt to his home and introduced him to his wife and children, as well as to other German inhabitants of who mostly were Jews. According to Schmidt, it seemed that all the Savannah eagerly awaited Sherman's arrival. Now, I tend to have reservations about his conclusion here, but do you know what I don't have reservations about? It's that you should go to our website at historybygps.com and check out our merchandise. Just thought I'd throw that in again uh, in case you were at work and your boss was talking to you the first time. So, in anticipation of Sherman's army, restrictions on the POW became even more relaxed. It was then that a prisoner friend joined Smith, a guy he called a little German Jew named Lowenstein. The small-statured man became his constant companion on his trips to the gas works and around town, so Lowenstein, too, became friends with the gas workers. I should mention that there is and was a substantial population of Jewish folks in Savannah, and that Schmidt mentions going to dinner at their homes in his story. Man, that's highly believable since Savannah has our country's third oldest congregation here. And the community is known for its southern hospitality. Now, around that time, Captain Gautil, the officer that recruited Schmidt at the prison, well, he walked up to Schmidt and told him that the Union Army was only two days away, so he, Gautil, and the others in charge of the prisoners were getting the heck out of town. And as far as he was concerned, Schmidt and Lowenstein were on their own. Now remember, the Confederate Army was still in Savannah, 
A few days later, they built a pontoon bridge across the river and escaped into South Carolina. If the two prisoners were found by the rebels, they would be taken into custody and marched away from General Sherman and freedom. In fact, weeks earlier, before they suspected that Sherman's army was coming to Savannah, the POW camp prisoners across town, including artist Robert Knox Snaden, were shipped to another location. They went to the newly built Camp Lawton near Millen, Georgia. Ironically, it was directly in the path of the Union Army. When Sherman's cavalry approached, the prisoners were put back on a train and shipped out again. Some went to South Carolina and others to Blackshear, Georgia, southwest of Savannah. As a side note, I've heard that uh, Lawton Prison was called the world's largest, I guess, prisoner of war enclosure. I really have no idea if that's true. If you happen to know, let me know in the notes. So with things getting hot in town, one evening Schmidt and Lowenstein slipped out of their quarters at the foundry, walked to the gas works, and contacted the workers. Some of the employees took them and hid them in the meter house, which was located at the back of what is now the Pirate's House building. The next day, Superintendent Smedberg discovered the stowaways and was livid with the stokers. He scolded them and demanded that the POWs leave. Now, another little side note here. A few years ago, I walked past that spot where the old meter house would have stood. Plumbers were laying pipe for an extension on the Pirate's House restaurant and were working inside an old brick foundation about the size of the meter house as it was described. I'll put that location in the notes as well. Now, Smedberg had a good reason for being angry. If the rebels found the prisoners in their hiding spot, he and the gas-working men could have been shot for aiding the enemy. Schmidt and Lowenstein begged to be allowed to stay in the hiding until after dark, but the superintendent would not listen, so there was nothing left for them to do but leave. However, one of the workers whispered to the two that he would leave the back gate unlocked. So later, that night, the two men returned. That back gate was next to the bluff where Wright and Riddle Street used to meet. Today, the fence of Morris Park and the Morris Center Terrace meet on the northeast end of the parking lot, right at that location. The POWs were ushered into a large coal shed that, at that time, held split firewood, and they crawled to the top of the pile. Now, that's where today's GPS location will take you. It was on top of that spot where our story intersects with the other episodes within a 15-foot radius or so. Now, on top of the pile of logs, Schmidt noted that their bed on the split wood had very few smooth surfaces and was in reality a bed of splinters and sap. He wrote that the resting place was the worst he'd ever found and that, to quote, Spedberg's findings for the perfect size pieces was great for making gas, but poor for hours of sitting and sleeping. After dark, a stoker who lived a few yards away came to their hiding place, whistled to the men, and told them that supper had arrived. They were given cornbread and they ate it on top of the rough cordwood. The next evening, a whistle was heard, but that time they were invited to join the stoker at his home. A crude map drawn by Schmidt indicates that it stood next to the spot where, today, those two fences meet next to the brick wall and the parking lot. 
I'll put Schmidt's map in the notes as well. Well, the two Yankee POWs were invited to stay and eat dinner. After a day and a night on a pinewood bed, the invitation was welcomed without any hesitancy. As Schmidt said, to quote, For we had by this time not a painless spot in our bodies, and the expectation of getting a seat on a chair overcame every scruple. He described the home as being typical of shanties and trustees' garden, and the tiny house was, uh, to quote him again, no better than an Irish or Negro house, unquote, and it was sparsely furnished. The room was illuminated by pitch pine sticks that filled the area with a cloud of soot. Now those pitch pine sticks, to those of you from the south, that's what we call fat lighter. Great sap-filled kindling wood is what it makes. Schmidt was thankful for the hospitality, but he said communication was difficult. He explained, The good people gave us food and entertained us, although we hardly understood their jargon. Now, they were probably speaking Gullah or English with a Gullah bent. It was the language of many of the families who had been brought over as slaves from Sierra Leone over the region over in Africa. Now, as the visitors talked, rumbling noises came from the commercial section of the city. The last of the rebel forces were destroying property to prevent it from coming into the Union hands. Unfortunately, in the chaos, others looted empty buildings while the rebel army gathered on the river to escape across the pontoon bridge near the foot of West Broad Street. Now, that road is now renamed Martin Luther King Jr. Boulevard. After the evening was spent, the two soldiers returned to the woodpile and spent another sleepless night. Schmidt described that the rebel soldiers ruined the food supply of the homes, making them inedible so the Union forces couldn't use them. Some days afterward, he said he saw some of this work, which he described as a savage and gruesome aspect. Rice, molasses, kerosene oil, uh, vegetables, and dry goods were all put in a heap on the floor uh, to a depth of about a foot or two. And, of course, everything was spoiled when you mixed it together. What he didn't know was that Sherman's men did the same thing to homes along the route from Atlanta as it swarmed Georgia's landscape and marched to Savannah. Many families in Georgia, including my wife's, tell how Sherman's bummers destroyed their food supply similarly and left their homes with them having nothing to eat. Well, the next morning, a call came from below the woodpile telling them the Yanks are here. The two men quickly crawled down and made their way to the main gate. Schmidt said in, in less time than ever before, they were on the ground and out the iron gate onto East Broad Street. From there, they found the street full of Union soldiers. But being clad in surplus rebel uniforms, they became objects of suspicion. So there was nothing for them to do but throw their hands up and surrender and ask to be taken to the provost marshal's office. In their interrogation, they explained their status and received an identification mark, an order for a day's rations, and ordered to report back every morning after that. One of the first things they did was to repay the kindness of the Savannah residents who had welcomed them into their homes. So they took their rations to the families and invited their hosts to share their food and eat with them, which they repeated every day for about a week or ten days. Then one day, the men were given orders and required to leave quickly by way of an ocean steamer that was bound for New York. 
They never saw their unfortunate found friends in Savannah again. According to the Wisconsin Magazine of History, when Frederick Schmidt died, he requested to be cremated. Then he wanted to be buried under a rose bush in his daughter's backyard. That's at 821 Cherry Street in Green Bay, Wisconsin. So if you're ever in the neighborhood, leave a flower on the sidewalk out in front of his resting place and remember an old veteran. One who served as much a veteran of the prison camp as he did a veteran of battle. So, if you didn't already know this story, now you know. Please remember to click the button and follow, and then go to our website, historybygps.com, and find more information on this episode. And others. I'll see you next time. Bye.